Welcome to Beneath Your Beautiful, where guests share stories of adversity and perseverance, which inspire, encourage, and challenge us. We embrace these tough conversations, intimately exploring our loves, fears, and hopes with a delicious combination of depth and lightness. I am Martina Clark, and I am a writer, a published author, and an educator. And in a previous life, I worked for the United Nations, but now I'm just teaching and I love it. What did you do with the United Nations? I worked on HIV as an educator and my very tiny, tiny claim to fame was I was the first openly HIV positive person to work at UNAIDS, which is the program that's sort of a hub for all of the other UN entities to work on the pandemic. And how long have you had HIV? 31 years and counting since I was diagnosed. What year was that? 1992. When did it become prevalent? HIV in general? That's an excellent question. It was first sort of recognized as a thing in the early 80s. And I think it was only in the mid 80s that they sort of gave it a name and realized that this wasn't just a blip. This was a real thing and more research went into it. And I know people who have been living with HIV for 40 or more years And I can assure you, none of us thought we would be here to be getting old and talk about this. (laughs) Right. But luckily we are. So I think last year might have been the 40th year of the official recognition of HIV as the virus that leads to AIDS if untreated. What do you want people to know about people who live with HIV? That's another great question. What I think I want people to know is that everything is so different than it was like when I was diagnosed. We didn't have treatment. That didn't become available until 1996. And so I was diagnosed, I was 28, and I was told, you probably have five years to live. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I went about my life thinking I was going to drop dead the next afternoon. Clearly, I haven't. You know, spoiler alert. (laughs) But um, I think what's important to know is that people living with HIV are essentially just like everybody else. We have a virus in our body. And now because we have viable treatment that really does work and has been working since 1996, we have enough years of data to know that it's truly working. It's not a cure, but people who are on treatment and adhere to it, their viral load which means the amount of virus in their body uh, becomes undetectable, which means that it's almost impossible for people to transmit it to other people now, which is a major, major, major shift from back in the day. Uh, and I think the other thing is that like people with HIV don't want to be treated like we're victims or oh, poor you, or it's something that you can't do anything about. I have tried to sort of weed that word out of my vocabulary And we talk about being survivors because we have, again, not overcome it because there is no cure yet, but we're living vibrant lives, living longer lives, some of us very long lives. (laughs) And so we want to just be respected as anybody else would be respected and know that we've been through stuff, Mm -hmm. but we're still here and we didn't have to stay in that ugly place of being diagnosed with HIV and, oh my God, my life's going to fall apart. Um, It didn't. We're still here. And for people who are newly diagnosed, I think to know that it is absolutely a traumatic event to go through, 
but you don't have to stay stuck in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Let yourself have it, feel it, go through it. But there's a lot of hope. Treatment works really well. And there's a lot of support now for people with HIV. And so I don't know why the stigma sort of persists as much as it does. But the more people know about it and know that it's not gone, it's not over. We still have this pandemic going on. I guess it would now be called an epidemic because it is slightly lowered numbers than originally. But it's still around, but we're still around too. And we're very cute and cuddly. (laughs) Well, what are the misconceptions about people who have HIV? What do you think the public thinks that is not true? Like it's not as easily transmittable, those kind of things. Obviously, I'm a little bit swayed because my perception has shifted dramatically since I have HIV. But I get the sense that the public still thinks it is a disease of people who have bad behavior because it's associated with gay men, which some people don't condone, which I think is tragic because that's a ridiculous stance is my personal opinion. (laughs) Happy to agree with that. Yeah. Or they think that it is something from drug users, Mm -hmm. which again, it, it certainly can be transmitted through unsterilized needles, but that puts a shame on people who have an addiction that I think is unfair. And it is certainly not the main way that people are getting HIV. Most people in the world get HIV through unprotected sex, Mm -hmm. period, end of story. So I think there's a shame attached to it because people assume that if you have HIV, you must have been doing something bad in your life to get it when it is just a virus. And as we saw with COVID, viruses really don't care about your behavior. They just want to get into your bloodstream and do their thing and make you miserable. Yeah. Oh, COVID might help with that. I hope so. And it was reassuring to go through the COVID pandemic and see that the stigma was not the same for that as it was with HIV. Mm -hmm. But there was still a lot of shaming of people. You know, if you got it, then you didn't do the right things. There still was that actually. That's true. And it was sort of a weird dynamic because like with the whole thing with masks, you know, you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. You know, If you don't right. wear the mask and you get it, why weren't you protecting yourself? And if you did wear a mask, you know, are you a weakling or something? Right. right. That was all very strange. Yeah. Society is the problem. I would certainly agree with that, that at least with HIV, um, science has actually made much greater strides than society. And for example, the vaccine that we have for COVID, some of it is based on research that was originally done trying to find a vaccine for HIV, Mm. which they have not yet found. But all of that research helped play into the fact that we were able to get a COVID vaccine so quickly. What's the name of your book? What is your book about? My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID-19. My book is about me because it's a memoir and there's a me in memoir. <laughs> it's about my life of living with HIV as a woman. And it is also about my work with the United Nations because, as I mentioned, I was the first openly positive person hired to work at UNAIDS. But then later I went on to work for UNICEF and I was a part of a very small team of people that sort of self appointed ourselves. <laughs> to conceive, create, and finally launch an HIV in the workplace program for all UN personnel around the world. Mm. And it was the first mandatory program, I think, of any kind, but certainly the first of its kind in the UN. And I'm really, really proud of that. And so 
I wanted to make sure that that piece of history, the UN part, like sort of what did the UN do internally? And then my story as a woman, because we don't have as many books about women living with HIV as we do men. I wanted just to make sure that those pieces of history were documented to add to the canon of whatever books are out there. Partly because I just think it's important that people know what actually happened and not sort of assume what they think happened. But also to give hope to other people, other women in particular who live with HIV or were diagnosed recently, to know that a person can actually have a really extraordinary life. And a lot of the things that happened in my life were sort of unexpected, not exactly accidents or serendipity or anything, but unexpected for sure. So my life is maybe not a total example of what everybody's life with HIV looks like, but all possibilities are still out there. And I think that's a really important message for people to know that you can live with HIV and live a healthy life and go out and do really fun things and really cool things and make a difference in the world as an individual. Do you have a partner? I do. He is a musician. And he doesn't have HIV. Correct. And so you just have protected sex. Excuse me if that's very personal. <laughs> that's okay. It is very personal, but I'm happy to answer that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So we use protection and mm -hmm. it's never been an issue. He's known mm -hmm. since day one. And I think it's important to let people know yeah, so that they can make an informed decision because it's a really big deal. It's an issue in the fact that I have to deal with it health-wise. And there still are certain considerations because I have HIV, but it's not like it's the, you know, the focus of our relationship or anything at all. Yeah. What are the health considerations? What do you deal with? Another good question. So in terms of HIV, for me, the main thing is on a daily basis, I have to take medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to take it. So that's not such a big deal, but it is something I have to think about and make sure I adhere to a regular routine for that. From HIV, I have neuropathy in my feet, which means my toes and my feet are kind of somewhere between pins and needles and numb. Mm. And it's just always there. And then I just try to be extra careful. I still wear a mask on the subway in New York because even though everybody else has stopped, I want to make sure that I'm not putting myself at extra risk. And then surprisingly, I actually got COVID early on because I like to just be on the cutting edge of all viruses. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the original recipe and I will forever wonder if I got COVID because I have HIV or if I didn't get a worse case because I'm on medication for HIV, which is already helping to boost my immune system. So that is a conundrum I do not know the answer to yet, but I actually have had more immediate side effects from COVID than I did from these 30 years of living with HIV, which is kind of weird. Like what? So I've had a headache for three years. Oh, wow. And it's kind of like somebody shoved a comb under my head in one spot and it's just tingly and weird. And it's only in one place and a little bit on the left temple, but on the left side of my hair, like if I were to part my hair on the side, it's about that spot. And Nobody can figure out exactly what it's from, so it's hard to figure out how to treat it. Mm -hmm. But I'm working with a pain doctor now who's trying different things, and I think maybe we're onto something with one medication. Then I have a gremlin that lives on the left side of my chest, which is sort of like a remnant of the damage from COVID 
that just never quite went away. And it's not unbearable, but it's just like there's a little something in there that is tingly and strange. And then the worst thing was that from the inflammation we had when COVID hit my body, I developed a membrane, an epiretinal membrane on the back of my left eye, which had to be surgically removed. But because we were in COVID, I didn't go see my eye doctor immediately. Mm. So it was about seven months of it being there and it has left permanent damage so that when I read, the text is squiggly, which is kind of a challenge for a writing teacher. (laughs) But again, it's not the end of the world. You know, I'm alive and much, many people have much worse symptoms than I did, but it's lingering and it will never be fixed. It's a permanent thing. So COVID actually did more immediate damage than all those years of HIV, which is very strange. Mm -hmm. But it feels like in some ways it feels like I'm repeating history because when I was diagnosed, we didn't have treatment. We were still figuring it out. And now with COVID, it's the same things like back in the wild west in in the medical world. And my doctor's like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm really sorry to say I don't know, but I just don't know. But we keep trying to figure it out. You seem like you're not a victim of what's happened to you. You seem very, it could be worse, which I really appreciate only because I have been a victim and now I am not. And I appreciate that in people because I do still know people who no matter what happens, if they stub their toe, Somehow the wall did it to them instead of they walked into the wall. I appreciate that you seem very positive with a positive outlook. Have you always been that way or has facing a life-threatening illness made you that way? Ah, that's a great question. I think it was probably a little bit in me, but it was a lot of going through that initial diagnosis and truly thinking that I had a few years to live and what was I going to do with this time? That's a Mary Oliver poem. (laughs) What are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? Exactly. My favorite line. Yeah. And it's very appropriate because I really had to take a hard look at myself and think, okay, this is it. What am I going to do? And it led me to becoming an activist because I sort of felt like I lived in San Francisco when I was diagnosed. And San Francisco was one of the hardest hit cities in the world, certainly in the country. And I had never seen, to my knowledge, I had never seen a woman with HIV, Mm. only men. And so I suddenly sat up and went, whoa, I didn't even know I had to be aware of this thing. And yet here it is now I have this thing. And so becoming an activist made me feel like if nothing else, maybe I could help some other woman not get HIV. And that gave me a sense of purpose. And that helped me shift from oh, poor me, this terrible thing has happened. And I certainly wallowed in that for a while. It kind of came and went. I think I'm pretty much over it now, but it came and went for a lot of the first years. But that very first year, within six months, I was already doing activist sort of things and trying to speak out. I became a public speaker in the school system in San Francisco. Then I ended up working with some international networks of people living with HIV. And then that led to the whole career with the UN. But doing something proactive and trying to turn it around and say, okay, this is a really bad thing. Nobody's going to fight me on that. But I can still try and make something a little bit good out of it. And that made me feel like it was worth it and that my life still had value. Mm -hmm. 
because I think the biggest thing was at the beginning, I really just felt like I was broken. I was damaged. Nobody would ever want me or love me. I was all these terrible things. I was stigmatizing myself, which I think is actually remarkably common. I don't know why we do that to ourselves, but we do. So being able to shift it and see that somebody could learn something from my experience really just made all the difference. Everybody's voice matters. And when you find your voice and you're able to speak out on the things that matter to you, individuals actually can make a difference. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing because most of us go through life and feel like, well, I don't like that thing, but what am I going to do about it? I'm just one person. And yet if the one person and the next one person and the next and the next and the next all do a little something, collectively, it starts to shift things. Mm -hmm. And I think about that with the example of the program we created in the UN, there were maybe six or seven individuals from different organizations that we kind of came together and we said, we have to do something. And we presented it to the bosses and said, we have this thing and we need to implement this program all across the United Nations system. And if you don't, it's going to be blood on your hands because you're not educating your own staff. Mm -hmm. And we were very bold and bossy and mean and made them cry and made them watch condom demonstrations and all sorts of things. Ultimately, we prevailed and they saw that indeed we had to do something and we were able to do this huge program and it became something so much bigger than us. This little team of six stubborn people ended up training hundreds of thousands of people indirectly through that program. And it's still going on today in 120 countries. So Having the courage to stand up and think, okay, I have to do something. Maybe I can't do it alone. Maybe I can find one or two other like-minded people. And together we can try and do some little thing. Whatever it is, it's worth trying. And it's so satisfying when you actually are able to accomplish something because you had the courage to try. Mm -hmm. Know that your voice matters and use that voice for good. And try and make the world a better place. Even if it's the smallest, smallest, smallest thing, it all helps. And if everybody can believe in themselves that they can make a difference, then I think the world would be better. This was so necessary. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Because I have been 100% ignorant on the topic. Never even think about it. So thank you for bringing it up. And sorry that you're living with it. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for acknowledging that. But Again, I made the proverbial lemonade out of my lemons. And I think I've had so many blessings in my life because of HIV, which I would still rather not have, but I could not have imagined a more rich and extraordinary, meaningful life than the one I am currently living, still doing it. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Beneath Your Beautiful hosted by Hara Allison. And thank you for your ratings and reviews. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Stay tuned.